Lord, we thank you for that final verse that Amos just read. We, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so we pray that that would be our anthem. I'm always, in one sense, as believers, but particularly now. Be at work, please, this morning. These truths and ideas that we so often know on paper or in our heads, we pray that they would change us and impact our hearts. Might we be a people who do look to you, who do turn to you, who do turn and pray to you first. And that wouldn't just be an idea, that would be a reality. And we pray you'd be at work this morning. We pray that you would indeed not just help us to understand this passage better, but to understand what it actually means. And that with your help and in your strength, we might be those who live that out. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, thank you very much to Matt, particularly, actually, for um, pitching it up so helpfully with the kids slot. In one sense, you've made my life a whole lot easier. Um, the question I was going to begin with, and I still do, is what do you do when you know, you know you're out of your depth, when you know that things are, are messy, complicated? I mean, do just picture the scene here for King Jehoshaphat. Picture it. You've got Ammon, you've got Moab, you've got Edom circling like vultures around you. They are natural enemies, but they are united together now because they are wanting to attack you and the people of God. They're, they're lurking at the borders of your land, sensing that the people of God are vulnerable. Here is a chance for them to, to pick them off, just ready for it. And so what do you do at a time like that? Let me back up a bit because I'm aware this probably isn't one of the, your best known passages of the Bible. Um, the story comes from a time in the Old Testament and it's a time when the people of God are in the land that God's promised them. But it's a time that's after Solomon, which means that the land is split into north and south. Do you remember you've got the big group in the north, Israel, 10 tribes, and you've got the little group in the south Jerusalem, um, with Jerusalem, you've got Judah, two tribes. And and these three nations bordered Israel and Judah on the east and the south. And this is Judah being threatened at this point. And that's where Jehoshaphat is king. Judah is where Jerusalem sits in the south. And historically, since King David and King Solomon, Ammon, Moab, Edom have been on and off paying tribute, paying tax to, um, to God's king, even providing forced labor at times. They had been subject to the kings of Israel. That had been their history. That had been their relationship. And so obviously fairly sour. But that was in the past. Now is their chance to rise up. Now they're going to do something about it. It's been over 60 years since Solomon's death. Israel is split in two. That means that their strength has been divided. More easily they can be picked off. The north has been weakened from battles with Syria. And so here is the opportunity. Here is their chance to take the people of God out. If they can just put their differences aside, if they can unite together, if they can join forces, then now is their chance to come and crush the army of Judah. And so there they are, circling like vultures around the southern kingdom. And so we start chapter 20 with the situation looking dire for the people of God. They are outnumbered, they are outgunned, they are outmanned. And so what are they going to do? Does this mean they're out of hope? Well, in one sense, it looks like it, doesn't it? It all looks pretty hopeless at this stage. 
but of course not because with God things are never hopeless never it's interesting as I was preparing this last week there are all kinds of things that we could say from this passage and um, we, we could talk about the answer that God provides for the prayer which come through if you flick on a bit verse 13 onwards through the answer comes through the lips of a nobody we'd know really nothing about Jehaziel son of Zechariah he's not a main player in the Bible at all and isn't it just like that the Lord will use all kinds of people very often the kind of people we don't expect we're not going to talk about that this morning or, or even we could talk about the fact that their response as the people the part that they play in the chapter later on is basically to stand back and they worship God. They sing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And I think we sing something similar at times. God fights the battle. God wins the battle for them. And so God alone gets the glory. Again, we're not going to talk about that this morning. Maybe we could spend a bit of time in home groups later in the week. Where we're going to go this morning is simply to focus in on what our posture ought to be in the midst of uncertainty and worry and pressure and stress. As Matt said, as he pitched it up for us, we've seen the situation. Now we're going to focus in on what the prayer ought to be, what we ought to remember. Of course, we will never quite feel what Jehoshaphat felt, will we? We, we won't be surrounded as he was. We will never literally be in the crosshairs of a great army. That would be remarkably unlikely. Or, or someone marching up, up to our door looking to devour us. Again, that would be unlikely. But I take it we can all relate very easily to the feeling of being overwhelmed. The feeling of being helpless, of being trapped, of being surrounded in one sense. The proverbial armies of our circumstances hemming us in, closing in around us with nowhere for us to go. And maybe you get some sleep, but you wake up the next morning and, and they're still there. It's the first thing you think about as your eyes open. Or you do something else, you try and distract yourself, you watch a film, you read a book, you listen to music, but then, then you remember those things are still there. Perhaps in this last season, those kind of feelings have been common for you, uncomfortably close. Maybe, maybe the stress and fatigue of being locked down and socially distanced and constantly having to wash your hands and, and wear a mask when you go out and life all being different. And you feel hemmed in. The feeling of not being at school or not being at work or not being able to see family and friends or, or not really having much of a summer holiday or, or all of that kind of stuff. We feel hemmed in. The stress of a potential wave as we look forwards. The stress of not knowing for sure whether you will still have a job at the end of it all or, or where your money will come from or eviction even. The stress of whether you or your loved ones will, will get it and what that will be like. You feel hemmed in or maybe even all kinds of other situations as well. For us as a church, the building process, which for many of us over a number of months or even years has been hugely stressful. At times we've very much felt kind of hemmed in, not sure what to do, not sure where to go. Or even as a church now, and you can pray for us as a leadership this next week, trying to map out the kind of pathway for meeting again in the building. 
what that might mean, what that might look like. So what do we do then in those situations? What kinds of prayer ought we be praying? Well, for Jehoshaphat, this was the story of a king who was, who was fearful and helpless and vulnerable. And he was keen to protect and to care for his people, the, the people he was responsible for, the people the Lord had entrusted to him. And as Matt hinted at, really, I take it he could have pretended he wasn't afraid. He, he hears about the army and he could have acted like he had it all together. He could have gathered together his generals and come up with a plan, plan of action. Or, or he might even have got political. He could have quickly sent a huge, great big pile of money and promises of, of allegiance or servitude to, to Syria or to Egypt. And they would have come and protected the people of God. Large and powerful nearby nations whom they could ally with at a price. I mean, that was what Jehoshaphat's father ended up doing. He forged an alliance with Syria, but he would have known that ended badly. But there's something profoundly human, isn't there? There's something profoundly natural about wanting to problem solve, wanting to work out a strategy to deal with the situation of, of examining the hand that God has given us, of using the brain that God has given us, and seeing how, how best we can play that hand to deal with the situation. And of course, that's not entirely wrong. Of course it's not, but, but step one must always be to look to him, to look to him, to look to God first. So instead, rather than a great plan of action, he gathers the people together. He, he admits his weakness and his fear. He says he's alarmed, as our translation puts it in verse three. That would be a huge thing for God's king to do. And then he prays, and the climax is there in verse 12. For, do you see? For, for we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And of course, many in our age know that first half. We do not know what to do. But for the Christian, we then have somewhere to go. And so Jehoshaphat not only runs to God in prayer himself, which he does, but actually he calls others to come and pray with him. We're going to briefly just park into um, verses three and four um, before we jump into what his prayer actually is. But just notice verse three. Let me read it again for us. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from God. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Now, you're going to be receiving an email a little later today if you're a regular at Maldon Road. Um, if you don't get a copy, that probably means it's in your junk mail or you don't have an account on the church website. Um, if that's you, then please do uh, get an account or find your password or email the office and we'll get you a password. But the letter that comes, the email that comes, is going to be calling us as a church at the start of this new academic year to a season of prayer, and of fasting to to together seek him in all of this all the stuff that's going on together to look to him and there'll be different opportunities that for us to pray online and where we can as gathered people as well over the next six weeks or so but do be checking your inbox it, it's our desire as a church 
to be gathering and looking to him. Maybe even to be saying, we do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Notice that the power, though, for Jehoshaphat's prayer comes in admitting his weakness. And you see, because he admits his weakness and because he looks to the Lord, it is a hopeful prayer. I think it's a prayer that's founded on at least three things which you find in verse five to nine, if you've got them in front of you. Um, in one sense, they are incredibly simple truths. They're the kind of truths that we learn as, as two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. But they are good things for us to dig into, however old we are. They're good things for us to dig into at times, like there's times of uncertainty, times for many of us of stress and difficulty, because they are things that we so easily forget. Have a look at verse six. And the first truth is there. What does he remember? He remembers who God is. Jehoshaphat prays, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. And, you know, when you've got Ammon, Moab, Edom, and they are united and they are circling like vultures around you. And being remembered that you reminded that your God is the true God, the one who rules over all the kingdoms of the nations, is such a helpful truth to cling to. Looking back, he's the God of their ancestors, the God who, who makes promises. We'll come back to that in a bit. But then he looks up, proverbially. He's the God who's in heaven. And the idea of God being in heaven is not of distance or being aloof or far off. But no, heaven is the place of, of power and authority. It's something of the control centre of the universe. That's why we're taught by Jesus to pray to our Father in heaven. Because he's the one who can answer prayer. He's the one who has the power. And so, so our eyes are on him. One of the, um, one of the board games that some of my family are, are very keen and annoyingly good at, uh, which we thankfully played only once over the summer and through lockdown, is the game of Risk. You played Risk? You can probably tell it's not one of my favourite. They might be keen, I'm less so. If you've not played it, it's a game of world domination, dice roll by dice roll. You get more troops and so have more chance to win more territory and more continents. And eventually, uh, 17 and a half hours later, you are the king of the world. Probably because everybody else has got bored and walked off or else they've let you win because they want to clear the table for dinner. But you see, the thinking in the ancient world was that different so-called gods had power over different places or, or different realms. This god was in charge of this area or this territory or this aspect of life, and yet the claim of the Bible from the first page is that ours is not a parochial god in charge of a, a little bit of territory or power over a small patch of the earth. Now, he's, he's not just the God of Israel or Judah, not just the God of the land and trying to expand and enlarge his territory. He, he is already the God who made everything. All the kingdoms of the nations are his. The entire board. 
no one can withstand him, therefore. However hairy the situation looks, however messy, we, we mustn't let that context squish our view of what God is like, because we can easily begin to believe that actually he's, he's not that powerful. It looks like other forces are rising up against him and he seems to not be that, that strong. But no, he's the God of the entire board. So reminding ourselves of that truth can be so helpful because naturally we do shrink him. And so rather than ruling over the kingdoms of the nations, maybe he ends up being one who has some say in our little bit of Oxford or our little patch of our little bit of Oxford. And rather than power and might being in his hands and no one can withstand him, well, he, he ends up being a little bit wimpy and thwarted by all kinds of things and having to move on to plan B or plan C or plan D or plan E or we're not quite sure where we stand. Now, whatever the challenges we face, let's resolve to remember who our God is. He's not just a wimpy God of just a little bit, but the powerful God who's in charge of it all. All the kingdoms of the nations and lockdown and coronavirus and planning portals and whatever that thing is that's keeping you awake he's bigger than you think he cares for you more than you think he does and look king jehoshaphat is not just whistling in the dark at this point pretending truths about god make believe and making things up to make himself feel a bit better but but now he can point specifically to what God has done in history. You can, you can point it out on a calendar. He's got evidence for these truths. Okay, so number one, who God is. Number two, he remembers what God has done. Verse seven. Let me read again. Our God. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name. What's God done? Well, the God of their ancestors has made promises, but, but more than just making promises, he has kept promises. See, he can be trusted. He made a promise to his friend Abraham, a, a single man, that, that a people would grow from this individual who would bless the world and just look at the size of them now. And with that, he would, he would promise them a place to live. And indeed, against all odds, they now have a place to live, despite having to be rescued from Egypt under Moses, despite having to lead them through the wilderness, despite having to take the land under Joshua. And nothing would stop those promises being kept, not, not enemies, not disbelief, not faithlessness, but rather God was at work. And more than that, they're in the land, there are people and they are settled now. There's a temple that's been promised to King David, built by Solomon. And there they are. They are in and they are established. And now Ammon and Moab and Edom are circling around like vultures. And what's, what's going on? Is, is God going to change his mind? Is, is his promise not certain or sure? 
I've looked down at verse seven. Did you, did you notice that little word that, as Amy read it for us, verse seven, forever? You see, if God has promised his people a land forever, and yet Ammon, Moab, Edom are, are circling, what's going to happen? And there's even the language of Abraham and the promise. There's the language of Joshua entering the land. There's the language of David wanting to build a house. Jehoshaphat stacking up the evidence of what God is like and what he's done, calling those truths to mind, applying them to the situation. You've got Ammon, Eden, Moab circling around. What's going to happen? Well, we know what's going to happen. Friends, we're not simply whistling in the dark ourselves as we trust the God who makes promises. As we face trials and whatever the rest of 2020 can throw at us, and it's been a challenging year, it's been a hard year, hasn't it? For many, it's been a really hard year. And so whatever 2020 throws at us, or whatever 2021 and beyond sends our way, we can trust him. Problem is, so often we are an overly entitled people and we focus on what we don't have, or we focus on the things that aren't quite right, or the things that aren't as we would want them to be. But, but it's a good discipline for us and our dissatisfied hearts with Jehoshaphat to remember what God has done. To recount his faithfulness to his promises to us. To remember the kind of God whom we serve. To look back at past faithfulness. To look back at how he's provided each step of the way. Or indeed to look back at, well, he's, he's, he promised he would send his son for us, and he did. He promised he would raise his son again for us, and he has. He, he promised us sins forgiven and cleansing and new hearts and renew covenant, and we have that. And he promised us that he would give us himself by his spirit and he would be with us, and he is, and he has been, and he always will be. He promises to provide what we need, and he does, and he promises to give us wisdom, and he, he does. And, and while it might not be that we get what we want, well, because we have a Father in heaven who's kind, we will always get what we need. He will always provide what we need. And Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven has been faithful. He is unable to break his promises to us. He is unable to give us bad gifts. We are in his Son, and so he loves us. And so he's a God who provides. And yet it's more than that as well, isn't it? We get to look ahead too and remember what God has said he would do. Which is exactly what Jehoshaphat does now. It means we can look ahead with confidence. We can look ahead with confidence. Have a look down at verse 9. If calamity comes up upon us, whether the sort of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and you will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and you will save us. 
And we might miss it, but what Jehoshaphat is doing in that verse is he leans into God's promises and he's actually quoting from his great, great grandfather, King Solomon. And he's quoting from him from when a time when the temple had been built and was dedicated. Huge construction project. And then Solomon stands at the temple threshold and he prays these words. And now here is Jehoshaphat, his great, great grandson, standing outside that temple almost surrounded by opposing armies, quoting those words again and calling on God to hear and to save his people. Do you see, it means as he looks back with thanks at what God has done, he's able then to look ahead with hope at what God will do. Which again is what we need in these times. The assurance that God's promises still stand true, that even though it might feel like there are armies surrounding us, vultures encircling us, that even though we might not know what to do, even though we might be alarmed or fearful, that he's got us. And it's okay not to know, because he does. And just as God promised to protect his people, so he will protect us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Lord. And it's not arrogance, but it means we look ahead with a kind of humble hope. The kind of humble hope that God will work in and among us to save us and sustain us. Whatever it is we're facing. Whatever we're up against. And we've said this before. We'll say it again as well. In one sense, if we're honest, they are easy words to say. But they are hard words to be convinced by or to remember when life is really messy. But, you know, he has designed his universe to work this way. He has designed his universe to work in a way that means when we recognise and acknowledge and look to him in our weakness. So he steps in and he provides. It's the way it was always meant to be. And it's the way it's always will be for the future as well. Why is that? It's so that we are weaned off our perpetual self-sufficiency, our our perpetual pride and our desire to, to take credit and to be thought of as amazing ourselves. The perpetual sense that we long for our life and what we achieve to be all about us. It's weaning us off ourselves into a fuller dependence upon him for everything we need. It's a perpetual process, a perpetual weakening, a a day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year so that we, we keep remembering to look to him and we learn to forget about ourselves so that he over and over and over and over again gets the glory. Trouble is we think if we look great, God looks great. But actually the plan is, if we look weak, God looks great. Which means it will be painful. Which means that we won't like it. And we'll feel uncomfortable. I mean, who wants armies to surround them? 
Who wants to feel overwhelmed? Who wants to be alarmed and fearful? But then over and over and over again, he gets the glory. And we don't know what the next few weeks or months will hold. We don't know what this next year will bring. Now, we don't know what this next month will bring. We don't know what this next week will bring. But we do know who our God is. And we do know what he has done. And we do know what he has promised us. And so we do know we can trust him. We do not know what to do. But Lord, our eyes are on you. Let's pray. Lord, make us a people who look to you, please, first. Who are okay with admitting our weakness, because we know it's in our weakness that you are strong. Lord, we thank you for this example here from this obscure little story in Chronicles. We thank you for Jehoshaphat. Thank you that even though he was surrounded, thank you that even though he was alarmed and fearful, he remembered who you are. He remembered what you had done. And he remembered what you had promised. And we pray that those truths, that those truths would be worked into us as individuals and as a church. Help us to be a church that looks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.